All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Minster Fullers? What the fuck, Adelics? What the fuck, Barry Finns? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for listening. I am at the Ice House this Sunday, the 6th of April, 7 o'clock show, Ice House, Pasadena, me, Ian Carmel. Come, hang out. I don't know. Who knows what will happen? If you like to see me work out, come, come watch. It's a great room. I have a good time there. It's a reasonable ticket. Uh, just come. Ice House, Pasadena, April 6th, 7 o'clock. Ian Carmel opening up the festivities. Today on this show, Louis Black. I'm having the amazing Louis Black here. We talked for a while. We had a nice chat. You know, primarily about, uh, I don't know, I don't want to tip it, but, uh, you know, he talked about a part of his life that you don't hear Louis talk about that often. I mentioned it's fucking raining in Los Angeles. It's raining right now. Can you hear it? And you know what that means to me? Terror. It means terror. As you know, some of you who listen to this show, I've got a bunch of sandbags that I packed up for the last thunderstorm because of the hole that uh, used to drain my driveway no longer functions as a drain consistently. I have no faith in the hole. So now I got to go after I talk to you guys right now. I got to go sandbag the fucking door. Listen to that rain. God damn it. I get so nervous that it's going to flood the garage out. I've got, to, I've got to have someone come over and jackhammer the fucking driveway and you know put some drainage system in. That's what I have to do as a responsible homeowner. Where is that on my list? I don't know. I'm just thinking about it now. I haven't put it on the list. I feel like this whole garage is going to wash down this goddamn hill. I have no idea what what the foundation of this home is. It was built in 1924. There's no indication that the foundation that this garage is setting on, on the edge of this hill, goes any deeper than the few cinder blocks that I see at the bottom of it and the stone walls. I have no idea how this thing is anchored. I'm, I, you know, We had a couple earthquakes out here. We're still standing. House is still on the hill. But I, it's it's not anchored. That could be interesting. It, at the best that could happen is that it, that the 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 garage falls down the hill during an intro. So if it's going to happen, let's do it now. All right, this isn't going to be the intro. Listen to that rain. Very anxious, folks. I'm very anxious. Did I mention I'm going to a bar mitzvah this weekend? That's right. I'm going to a bar mitzvah this weekend. Hey, not that Jewy. Not that Jewy, but it's my nephew's bar mitzvah. Got into a huge fight with my father yesterday leading up to the bar mitzvah, which is good. That's good family stuff. Huge fight with the old man over bullshit. I'm a 50-year-old grown-ass man, and I'm yelling at my father. Not saying he didn't deserve it, but I am saying I didn't feel good about myself yelling. So we'll see how that plays out this weekend. I should have some exciting stuff to report. I'm going with Moon. She's going with me. She's going to meet. She's going to the Marin Well to see what where from where I sprung and try to integrate that into her abacus of understanding of who I am. The, uh, the complicated, but not that I think that, mess that makes me up. And you do know that uh, it's all loaded up. When I go to the bar mitzvah thing, the family thing, you know, my brother's got an ex-wife uh, who's married to a, a guy who used to be married to my brother's current wife. My ex-wife, who was my brother's first wife's best friend, will be there. My ex-in-laws will be there. My father will be there. And my mother will be there. They're not married. You know, the, ugh, 
I've been through this once before with you guys. The, the possibility of uh, complete emotional chaos and uh, meltdown is high. Definitely high. So the reason that this interview with uh, Lewis Black is uh, unique to me is that we ended up talking for about an hour about Lewis's career as a playwright. Now, this is something, you know, Lewis and I share this, uh, I think, an amazing capacity early on in our lives to uh, pursue something that was completely, not just a long shot, but almost an impossibility. I, too, wanted to be a playwright. I, too, wrote a play in college with my friend Steve Brill. It was a comedy, but I had loftier ideas. I'd, I'd begun work. It was weird. I was trying to think because I know that you know, I was very affected by Sam Shepard's plays, and I'm not great at reading plays, but I thought playwright... You could really, you know, you had a lot of wiggle room. You could write some weird ass shit. You know, you, you know, you, the audience would forgive you if there was enough uh, resonance to it, emotional or dramatic. Uh, you could just be as fucking, you know, weird as you want and uh, not explain yourself. I thought that was the joy of playwriting. I remember at some point I began to outline uh, a play called Black Box. Yeah, it was a story of the, uh, the complete moral breakdown of a uh, commercial airline pilot. See, I thought it was a clever, a clever play. Black box. What's in the box? So I had this weird character that I built to this airline pilot who was going to ruin his marriage and his family. And, uh, and I think I got about as far as what I just told you in the creation of that play. Maybe I should write it. Maybe black box will be a huge hit. Because I still like a good play, man. I still like a good play. So let's go now to me. Oh, my God. The water is rising. Holy shit. Hold on. Let me go look and see if the hole is working. Okay. All right. The hole is being blocked by a bunch of uh, pine seeds. From my neighbor's pine tree that's up top. So the one neighbor on the one side, his garbage from his tree, which also provides shade for my house, which I've established, is now clogging even the possibility of the hole working. Fuck, man. I see the fucking water building up. Hold on. Okay, well, the hole seems to be working right now, but I don't know if it's that... It was just filling up or what? You know, you, you guys don't need to be part. I got to go put sandbags out. All right, so let's listen to me and Lewis. So now I've been trying to, to be a little better. I've been running a little bit. I haven't really gone back into this sort of yoga and, and, and thing, but I was running like two, three days a week. Then I got a cold and I stopped running. And uh, I bought a bike, which maybe I'll ride. I've ridden that bike once. I got another bike at uh, my friend's house. Maybe I'll ride that one. I've had that bike for about 10 years. I've got, hey, a, I got a bike. Yeah, every couple of years I bring it in to get fixed up. And then I put it outside and get shitty again. So that's that's how I that's how I do it. Lewis, that's that's my process. I don't know how what your regimen is like. My regimen is 15 minutes in the morning. And that's it. And then walk around. 15 minutes of what? I do uh, all the stretches and uh, push-ups. All the stretches. I do fucking stretch and push-up. I don't give a shit about it. 
<laughs> but I mean, what are all the stretches? Wait, if you I mean, you stre- I stretch my fucking, I stretch my body out. I do the fucking lean to the left, lean to the right, stand out, sit down, fight, fight, fight. You know that crap, all that fucking great. So if you were to crap, write a, a stretching book and an exercise, book. I wouldn't write a book. It would be it would be a half a page. I just want to know, like, are you doing the classic? Old Jewish man stretches? Uh, no, I'm not doing an old Jewish man. So I can't even fucking imagine doing that. I can't <laughs> <What>? even. <laughs> I wear. I put on a little. I, I'm not, I, I, yeah, I exercise with a yarmulke. On. No, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, is it a little like oh, I can push a little here, a little? Of no, this? I just do fucking. I do All right, the, you the, the fucking my. I, Why are you I roll my me? shoulders. I fucking turn my fucking head. I do s- s- these squat fuck things. Yeah, I do push ups. Squat fucks. I've heard of those. You know the yeah. thing. You go yeah. down yeah. and yeah. up yeah. and down and yeah. up and down and yeah. up and down and up. And I do about fifty of those and fifty push ups and then I do fifty. Uh, Leg lifts and then I stretch. You know, you lean to the left and then you lean All right. to the right. That's a full. It's a it's full. Fi- it's fifteen minutes. It's not like a. a and a then you walk. And then no. Then during the day, because I'm in New York, I walk around. I try to make sure that I fucking walk at least you know a, a mile if I. You can. look. You look better than I've seen you look in a long time for some reason. I don't get that either. I have no idea what that's. About. No, I mean I think it's your hair is combed. You got new glasses, frames. You know, you're, <laughs> you have a nice color to your skin. You yeah, seem, I, your outfit make... is put together. <laughs> Yeah, I have my, I have my designer. When I come to LA, I have my designer come over. What are you doing here? I came out here to see you. Thank you. It's very nice. I can tell by the attitude getting out of the limo. They, where the fuck am I? What am I doing? Well, I said, there's got to be more. I said, well, the thing I told him, I said, I can't believe Mark lives this far away from what from whatever it is that you know i mean if you got if you're going to go into town and work or do some sets let me explain to you i'm five minutes from the lovely town of pasadena i can get to warner brothers in about 10 minutes you get on the one third very close to the valley all right, I'm very close to all that stuff. There's well, no center. The center well, does not uh, hold. Well, the center, of course, doesn't hold anywhere except... But but the fact is that, uh, you know, I'm coming from... Uh, we were coming from uh, West Hollywood Sunset. Right. And that apparently is a schlep. Well, it's about 25 yeah. 25, 30, right? It was a little longer. Yeah, I don't know how he went. Did you yeah. get on a highway? Well, he had one of these. I said to him, because t- it's a, it, these guys I've worked with for years, because yeah. I don't drive out yeah. here. I can't. Yeah. Five years ago, I said, no, fuck yeah. you. I'm yeah. done. Right. It's too many cars. This is madness. Yeah. And I'm driving 20 minutes to do something. I'm driving 20 minutes, then I'm driving 40 minutes, then I'm driving 80 minutes. Yeah. And by the, whatever the third thing is, it's like I want to take a nap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, <laughs> of course. Yeah, it's exhausting. But he had an, an old-timey, like, Garmin thing. Oh, he did? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, guys, you know, yeah. if you Get want, I'll run a benefit for you fucking guys. You can use my phone. <laughs> Let him use your phone. He so, probably got on the highway. There's a way to take the streets, get you out here about 25, 30. Mm-hmm. Anywhere you go is about 25, 30. Yeah. 45 if you want to go to the west side. Mm-hmm. But at night, I can get to the comedy store in 20, 25 minutes. Well, it's not good. that bad. You, well, you, you well, integrate this shit into your life here, Lewis. Right, I know. I used, When I spent time here, I knew. You know, it's like, you, you, and for somebody like you, it would destroy your act. Because you would be so aggravated in the car all the time. You'd be exhausted. You would be yelling out of context. Well, you know what stopped me? I mean, this is the thing that stopped me from driving here. It was about five years ago when I got off the plane and kind of they, someone that picked me up to take me to wherever yeah. I was going. They, yeah. uh, uh, I'm in the back of the car experiencing road rage. So I'm not driving, and I went, and I was going to go get a car. Contact road rage. And I just said, no, I'm done. I yeah. can't do this. I really can't, because I'm looking, what is all this fucking shit? Oh, yeah, it never ends. It it's, never I, ends. How do you deal with it? It might. It, it, 
You know, sometimes like, you know, I've actually been doing a bit about it recently about how I really think that if you take advantage of those feelings, you could probably process some deep anger, some like deeper <laughs> things. Like, I mean, obviously the way to, to do it as a, a person who wants to grow uh, a set of uh, patience gonads is to say, I have no control over this. This is the way it is. And that's that. I'm not really generally one of those people. So I just, you know, either quietly give myself cancer or make phone calls. Yeah. I, I call people. I, that's what I, I, a lot of my phone, longer phone conversations are because I'm stuck in taking, traffic. It's taking it. Yeah, yeah. I just like, how you doing? They're like, what's up? I'm like, well, I'm just driving. Oh, you're in traffic. And I talk to my brother for 25 minutes. <laughs> books it's on, nice. Books on tape. Yeah, it keeps up. I don't do, I don't, I don't, I don't, I generally try to get proactive. And mend family problems, relationship problems. Talk to my manager. I just I do I do all that work not to not to bother with. But what are you doing here? Is it a secret? Is that what's going on? It's very secret. No, I came out to here do, for the government, aren't you? I am here for the. Uh, I'm here as a part of the Malaysian airline. Oh, the search, the search. This is phase one. They hired where, you. <laughs> this they, is they where want, I'm looking. They want to have you yell internationally. <laughs> Get Lewis Black on it. He'll find him. And uh, so I. Uh, I came out here to um, initially. Well, I was uh, Ferguson. I'm doing Craig's show. Yeah, and uh, there was a, a couple of things that I could. I was going to do, and I was. Do, I did a benefit on uh, Saturday night at the Saban Theater. Which oh, really? Was formerly the Wilshire, uh-huh. which is now renovated. And the good news is, oh, it's nice. I was I was there with uh, Judd Apatow for a thing. It was great. It's great. It's a great. So, who was on that show? Room. What'd you do? I, it was just me. It was me doing a benefit for the. For the there's a this is um, a, a, I don't understand any of this. But yeah. the temple, the synagogue basically uh, is uh, putting money into the renovation of this thing. And uh-huh. Basically, I helped. Uh, I, you know, as a benefit, the money went to um, renovating the renovating like the back of it now of the temple of the uh, of the theater of the Saban. Of the saving, yeah, they're basically saving. It's a historic. It's, so as a result, they were going to destroy the saving. How is this a Jewish situation? Because the somehow the, uh, the 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 temple ended up buying this theater because the theater was in shit shape. Apparently, oh, maybe they need it for high holiday services. They did need it for, and they were using it for high holiday services. Oh, so that's what gave them the idea. Why not uh, own this thing? Why not? Oh, but, but it was also because it was a uh, historic building they were going to basically get rid of, and they uh, got it. And they're the ones who worked to get it on the National Historic Registry, and from at least from what I can understand. And so, so basically, I helped. Uh, pay part of the bill well that's nice and they flew you out yeah first class no they didn't fly me out i was already out here i was performing out here it's all about giving back okay. i was already i was already out west part of the reason you know it's like okay oh, you, you know lie. that you, deal you just threw it in let's kill this bird yeah now that we're out here yeah. if i'm gonna be here why fly home and then fly back right um where were you so performing? i was in uh, you did shows out here chico and anaheim and medford oregon oh yeah selling out everywhere the, the, the ticket sales are good. Yeah, I'm still kind of, they pay attention. <laughs> they still show up. Now, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Can I just ask you a question? Right. Yeah. So now, you, you know, you've been touring like a lot. What are, you, what are you out? Like how many weeks a year, really? Probably, I don't know, 100 dates, 120. Why? Why? Are you serious? Well, I'm just wondering. I love it. I love it. But let me ask you this. I know you have other creative aspirations. Yes. So what about those, Lewis? Well, those um, kind of, a, you know, I, I, I wrote th- three books and I've been sitting around uh, working on another book and I've been working on another play. And I took time to have this play produced about two years ago. I mean, I took time off to get 
to work on this play. We did four workshops of it, and then I and then we finally got it up and running at theaters, and it was. And done. what's that called? That's called One Slight Hitch. And 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 do you, is what is it about? It's a. Uh, you won't believe it. I'll believe it. A, I don't believe it. It's a. Uh, it's a farce, a, a romantic comedy and a farce. Uh huh. Um, and if essentially, if you read it. You wouldn't know I wrote it. It was written when uh, I started writing it when uh, I, f- I finished writing it initially in about 1982 or 83. And it got produced at a, at a really nice summer theater. And it was uh, it was essentially the play that I wrote when I was a playwright in hopes of, uh, you know, becoming what you what you can hope to get out of becoming getting a play done a bunch of places is then I could at least get a teaching job so I could support my my junkie habit, which was playwriting because they don't pay you much. for that. Right. I mean, they don't. It is beyond belief what they they don't pay you for, yeah. for writing a play. Right. And then a few about 10 years ago, a friend of mine picked the play up and said, uh, you know, I know how to fix this. And so we did four workshops of it. And now I've got this really old-fashioned uh, romantic comedy farce, <laughs> and it's like, like it was, you know, they kind of compared to go, you know, he's got a a bit of Neil Simon in him. <laughs> you probably did then before everything went bad inside of your head. <laughs> yeah, before, before things, before after twenty years of solitude. <laughs> yeah. Well, that well, that's interesting to me. So, so this thing is from 1981-82. Now, this friend of yours, who's that? Is he your dramaturge? Is he an old buddy? He's a, he's a the guy I met when I was at uh, drama school. His name's Joe Grafazzi. He's a he's done, if you look him up of IMDb. Grafazzi, I heard that guy. Joe Grafazzi, and yeah. he's done about a hundred films. Yeah, and uh, he's a director. Uh, he was uh, well. He had become because of the nature of the business of acting. You know. Oh, he was uh, an actor. But I know that guy's face. He's an interesting looking guy. Yeah, exactly. And he's done movies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Splash. He was in Splash. He was the taxi driver. In, 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 in inevitably in. Um, in Deer Hunter, he's the singer. Yeah, yeah, no, I know who exactly. Yeah, yeah. Little, little guy, little guy. He played the guy who won the supermarket that Meryl Streep worked at. Yes, yeah. He's a great. Um, oh, and he became. I a love director. that guy. <laughs> yeah, but I'll let him know. It'll make his day because he feels, you know, like he's he's still not remembered. Great character actor. He really is. He really is. Yeah, and yeah. he's like very identifiable. He's like, oh, there's that guy again. Yep. And Joe was really. Uh, Joe and I got to know each other because Joe, I'm at. I'm at drama school, and I'm interested. Where in was this comedy, at drama school? Yale Drama School. You, know, you did you know. go to Yale. Yeah, the Yale Drama, the school, of, Yale School of Drama, which I went to with uh, Robert Klein. <laughs> Robert was before me, but not by much. <laughs> Dick Cavett and I used to hang. <laughs> I only know the comics that went there. It was Cavett, Klein. I forget who else. I don't know. And me. Yeah, but it was, uh, but it was the drama school, not the. Uh, in the end, it's not Yale. I didn't go to Yale undergrad. No, but the drama school is a very prestigious. It's a big deal. It was. A big it was. Deal. It, it was always a big deal. I yeah. mean, they, they. That was the place. Well, that that's where Ju- Meryl Streep came out of. And Juilliard and 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 in uh, Yale and mm-hmm. uh, Carnegie Mellon. That's right. it, yeah. right? Yep. So yeah, no, I applied to Yale and I went and auditioned, and embarrassed the fuck out of myself. Did you really as an actor? Did you really? Yeah, because I I had like I was cocky. I had no idea the importance of it. Yeah. I think I've told this story before, but I, you know, for my, they wanted a picture. I went to a photo booth and I got a strip of pictures. <laughs> they wanted me to write something, so I wrote a page of something. They needed a reference, so I went and woke Derek Walcott up, who I took a playwriting <laughs> class with, and he wrote this thing on this typewriter on top of a filing cabinet in his bathrobe. He said, "Here, take it." <laughs> and I thought I was in, 
And I did these horrible auditions. I did a Sam Shepard thing, which I jerked off my belt in front of these three people. And I did some, uh, they wanted a classic, but I knew nothing of Shakespeare. So I, I did uh, like a, an old uh, Greek thing that oh I just God. picked. It. it was horrible. It was, oh it, 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 and like, here's what I remember. As I'm waiting to Euripides. go in. Yeah, it was something like that. Of course. Here's what I remember. I was going in to do it, waiting in the in the area where they're waiting. And there's a woman who's about to go into her audition, and she's doing like almost like these weird acting exercises, like wah, whoa, and she's jumping around. She's making faces, a lot of movement, you know, like she's just like you know focused and fucking doing something that looks calisthenic. And I'm like, I am fucked. <laughs> like I'm hungover. I'm, I'm stepping out for a cigarette, and she's doing some you know private kabuki experience. Yeah, know, yeah. Oh yeah, boy, it's, there's nothing. Oh, I got nothing. <laughs> no, yeah. How'd you get in? What did you do? Well, playwriting. So, oh, so okay, so it's, it's a different. It's a different thing. Yeah. So you basically send them a play, and you, the same thing. How old were you? Was this back when you were supposed to do it? Like after college? Where'd you go to college? I went to college at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I got a. a you have a relationship with down there? You still got a house down there, or something? I have an apartment down there. Uh huh. That's uh, right, and I just did a. I do a comedy festival with the kids down there every year. With the kids. With the. What uh, does that mean? The means with uh, students down there. They they have they've had a twelve year comedy festival, and they invite. Uh, in Raleigh. Chapel in Chapel Hill. Hill. I'm going to Raleigh next month. Which, uh, where are you going? Good nights. Are you really? Yeah. Oh, well, I haven't been there in a long time. What's well, a new new thing now? It's a little, it's same space. but It's yeah. the same space, but not that schmuck's not running it, no. is he? No, no, not the original him? schmuck. Yeah. Remember what a schmuck he was? Yeah. I can't even remember the schmuck's name. I can't either, but no, there's a new guy, but then I think the new guy's gone. I think uh, now it's Grossman from Helium mm. is uh, is running it. Because it's still a great room. It was always a great room. It actually room. is a great room. It is. <laughs> and, you know, it's like an old classic room. And yeah. like, and Raleigh has really turned around a lot. There's well, a, Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill is like a, it's a boom town. It's a boom town, but now you know, the foodie thing is happening and the hipster thing is the, happening. Everything is yeah, yeah. going on there. And, there and so a, much of the American hipster renaissance right now is 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 that app, you know, rural kind of country-ish thing. You know, beards, jeans. You know, like but worn it's out this clothes. Weird, it's this weird. Um, uh, it all comes and, sourced in this. And it's south. this weird embellishment of what occurred in the '60s. It's a complete kind of a flip on the '60s. I mean, because really, that's where it was all back to the land. Let's 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 eat our own millet. Yes, <laughs> right, right. Let's grow our own millet. We'll yeah. dry it, yeah. and at the end of the winter, we'll have two cups yeah, we'll of bring, millet we'll, we grew. We'll bring, <laughs> we'll, we'll bring back squabs. <laughs> Whatever the fuck they are. Yeah, no, but now it's like framed and not a, a, it's not a proletariat thing. It's an artisanal thing. Yes. Okay. That, you know, it's like, yeah, we could kill our own pig, but, you know, if we cure it this way that is passed <laughs> down for generations from people we don't know. Well, I was sitting in a, this yeah. is a restaurant in, yeah. in, uh, in Durham, and uh, they said, and we have, uh, the the and will be it's an artisanal pumpkin soup and I went you got to be fucking shitting me there's yeah. not an artisanal pumpkin well yeah a farmer down the road discovered a, 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 the pumpkins that were grown in the 1770s and yeah. his, okay whatever the yeah, heirloom yeah. pumpkin that, a fucking heirloom pumpkin how, how was that for you it was the it was very tasty <laughs> it was like it was like going back you know and i i could sense i could hear the sound of the troops and i could sure, hear yeah. i could hear freedom she's the, the this, freedom bell call this slavery soup <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what this should be called. <laughs> so, so I went to school there, yeah. and I um I had a drama degree, 
from there. I went there in theater. I've, I've always as a knew. child. You went there at the right time. I'm just trying to picture a young Louis Black because I think the first time I ever really saw you, the first time I set eyes on on the thing that is you, was probably in 19. Uh, eighty-seven or eighty-eight. Yeah, at the Catch a Rising Star in Harvard Square. Yeah, you're probably you were right. headlining. Yeah. I don't even know if I was working with you. I might have been even middling for you. I don't know. No, you weren't. We we never we never were that lucky. Okay. So, but I do. The one thing I know is that uh, you were doing you then, which is a great <laughs> amount of consistency. That you know, the, it hadn't it hadn't ripened. No. But uh, you were worked up, and I remember a couple jokes. What were some of the jokes you did? What was it, the joke about a hamster? This is something you buy to teach a child about death. Oh, about death, yeah. yeah, yeah, buy, yeah. A, buy a hamster, you know. <laughs> I used to talk parakeets and hamsters you yeah. make a purchase so that the child will learn something about what dying is about. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> um, all, right, so, all right, so you go, so where'd you grow up? Silver Spring, Maryland. In Maryland. Yeah, outside of D.C. So equidistant from Washington and Baltimore. Was your father in the political racket? My father was uh, a mechanical engineer. Yeah? Yeah. What did he, he work on? He worked on, um, this is sea mines. Sea mines. For the, the, so he worked a government contractor. No, in the, worked in the government. Oh, he was what, within what the What happened was my father was, uh, when, the, when uh, came out of school, came out of, went, left New York City, this is a great, leaves New York City to go to the University of Oklahoma, like it, maybe 16 years after it became a state or something. Is he first generation? Or? First generation. You know, so his parents are from the old country. His parents country. from the old country. He lived his his father died in the in the flu epidemic, so it's only the mother raises him from one. Where'd they come from? Poland? They came from Russia. Russia. Yeah. Mid- Medvedica. Medvedica, Russia, and they're what, Lower East Side? Lower East Side. Uh, yeah. Uh, East Village. Uh huh. He I always asked him, how'd you end up at the University of Oklahoma? He said, I wanted to get as far away from my mother Mother, as I could and still be in the continental United States. (laughs) So he goes to Oklahoma, comes back, ends up in, uh, we're at war, you know, he ends up working for the government. um, For the second one. For the, uh, yeah, the second world war, ends up working for the government and uh, does, you know, works as a mechanical engineer, works on, but basically ends up in the... In the sea mine end of things, the war ends. He tries to get a job in like the early fifties um, as a uh, to get out of mechanical engineering, making weapons to do like uh, refrigerators and stuff like that. So the corporations at the time, Bendix and Yadi, yeah, yeah. whoever else was around, uh-huh. he goes to all of them. His last name is Black. They, it turns out, they're a either they're no, they're no jobs because Bendix goes totally into weapons, so they just want him to do weapons. Or certain companies went, oh boy, you're a Jew, you're, we're not working with you. Huh. So he dealt with the, and then so he stayed in the government and, yeah. and worked, uh, worked literally, uh, this is, worked until, um, uh, and he always felt good about it. It never, it, it, it never disturbed him, the, uh, the, the making of sea mines, because it's a defensive weapon. So They're pretty frightening your, things. Like a sea mine, like, you know, when you see them in movies and stuff, those weird floating right. barb but, things. Yeah, you know, it's like a basketball with uh, spikes. Oh, it's only that big? I thought they were huge. Yeah, there were some of them, I guess. And, and he, but he um, he didn't mind it because you were, you basically, it was to defend your harbors. Yeah. So it's a defensive weapon. We, my, uh, the, the, the Vietnam War kind of starts and is fomenting, and then there's the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. My mother's 
this is bullshit. My father goes, um, you don't know if it's bullshit because you haven't read the Geneva Accords. Yeah. My father is the only man I know who sat down and read the Geneva Accords. He read it. He, I, and I'll never forget it. It was like this little reference book again in the library with a blue cover back. Right. And he read the whole thing. And, I, and I'd watch him every night. It was reading like five pages a night. And at the end, I said, what do you think? As he said, there's absolutely no legal basis for us being in Vietnam. So he got pissed. Then we mine after reading the Geneva Accords. Yeah. He, he, he went straight to the source. He went straight to the source. To Nobody make, I know. But but I think also when you're dealing with a with a guy like that, this is a guy that you know, believes in the U.S. government. That obviously had a job that he was able to live with because of very specific uh, intention of that type yeah. of weaponry, right? And and believed in 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 defense. And and now I guess that that war. You know, really threw a wrench into you know the the fundamental belief in the U.S. government at all for a yeah, lot of people. Well, and and then to boot. We uh, what what drove him over the edge was we mine Haiphong Harbor. So we now have using his weapon as an offensive weapon, and at that point he announces at the age of fifty four that he's going to retire the next year. Is that right? Yeah, and he did, and he did because of that. Because of it, it's the most extraordinary. It, it, it's nobody I know. There's no one else I know who's ever really you know. I mean, that personally I've ever met that it took. The principle to that, and I was, uh, I was just finishing up college. My brother was just starting. It was like, really? did either one of you get drafted? No, I got lucky. Yeah, your yeah. brother? No, no. I had three thirty-six was my number or something. It's the only time I've ever won a lottery. Yeah, you know? but that's well, that's amazing because like he's like you know I'm going to make the decision on my own. You know, he gets the Constitution, but he's going to read the Geneva Accords. <laughs> that this is bullshit, and they're using my product yeah. incorrectly. Against the value system that this country is based on. Yeah. And he retires. And he retires. And did he remain angry at the U.S. government? No, he then became a, uh, he went and apprenticed to a guy who does stained glass. <laughs> he, <laughs> always wanted, he always wanted to be, you know, what his, you know, what he wanted to do was yeah. art. Uh-huh. And did he? And he did. For uh-huh. the next, and he's still alive, but he, for 30 years. He's still alive. And he's still, he's 96. Your mother? Yeah. It's still alive too. Still alive. Really? Yes, yeah, unbelievable. They, my mother calls it overtime. <laughs> what did your mother do as a as a? The, she was a substitute teacher. Very. But so so your father was in the defense department as, when you were a child. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, they worked at the Naval Ordnance Laboratory. Now, when you were a kid, did you go to, to go see where dad worked and go? Because Washington's pretty. It's a pretty amazing place. When yeah. you remove the people from it. Yeah, no, it's spectacular. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know. No, it's really beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's a really... Uh, but he worked literally across the street. So we were in the suburbs, oh, so and yeah, they okay. had this place. But I went over there, and it's, you know, and then you get inside, and all the walls are green. And, uh-huh, uh-huh. and then they have, like, you know, the... Uh, here's here's the, uh, you know, here's the sea mine. Here's this. Here's right, that. right. There was a missile, you know, some sort of a... You know, one of those things when you were a kid that when I was a kid, especially, you know, these this mini missile that's in front of the place. Like, you know, yeah. some people have art. We had a mini missile out there. And, and it, was, yeah. it was nifty looking. You yeah, kind of go, yeah, boy, yeah. you know, I want to make that. I yeah. want that model. Uh-huh. So and, were you, uh, you so you were proud of your dad? And, you know, mm-hmm. when, when did, uh, what was it, the Vietnam War that started to turn everything around for everybody? Or, I mean, what did you want to do as a kid? I mean, did you? I wanted to, I wanted to, uh. I got sucked into theater when I was, and I couldn't, and it was crazy because it was just going to theater. Yeah. I didn't, I, 
shittiest actor on earth. I didn't yeah. want to direct. Right. I didn't think about writing. I was fascinated by it for reasons that still is yeah, But I liked reading. There was really great criticism being written at that time. Uh-huh. So these guys like Robert Brewstein who ran the Yale School of Drama and I remember that Stanley guy. Kaufman and uh, yeah. you can go, even Walter Kerr was writing well, but these guys were writing and I just, and I'd go and I was fast. I liked plays. I liked the idea of a, an event that was essentially, we're all going to believe this. Right. We're going to hallucinate together. But I, it, and I, it's I just, also, it's visceral. And it's totally visceral. Because you're right there. Like you can't, you know, you cannot escape the emotions of it. Right. There's no distance. Yeah. So you were reading highbrow criticism of theater, which provoked you to have a deeper understanding of witnessing it. Yeah. And then, and, but it would go back and forth. Like my father said, they started taking me. I went to, I started with Fruity. It was musicals. I'm like, yeah. oh, hello, Dolly. This is great. Yeah. You know, sure. it is but, great. And, and, and musicals- all of these things were, uh, um, we had a, like a subscription. I'd go with my father. We'd sit in the second balcony and, yeah. and watch these shows. I like, find musicals very moving. When I see more than three people singing or dancing, I, I tear up. <laughs> I, know, I don't know what it is. It's well, because it's so fruity. Is that- it's so seriously <laughs> fruity. But to me, but, there's an amazing vulnerability to to, to dance and and singing. I, yeah, and when I it's done it. well, it's kind of staggering. Yeah, it and is. especially when you're a kid, it just I got hooked. And then uh, we went and we 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 had these subscriptions because theater at that point they would roll through town and go on their way to New York. These yeah. shows, so I would follow the reviews, and it was like to me, it was like um, I know I knew I'm not going to play shortstop, but this to me was like a kind of as close as I could get to a sporting event. And writing about it because it was like, did they, you know, did they, uh, you know, it's like uh, when the um, the gymnast does the, uh, yeah. the, you know, and oh, she missed her dismount. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 you know, that was the way I saw these critiques that it was like you're basically critiquing, here's where you had to go, this is how far they got or they made it. And right. I, and I kind of found it interesting. Yeah. Is it is a yeah, and and these guys wrote great stuff and then every so often you could kind of like expound on on the shit that you got out of it because like you know when you deal with uh with with theater criticism it's like those guys were more a lot of those guys were cultural critics right so they could speak to the play itself and to how the play resonates with the culture right now and how that production you know connects to you know the 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 cultural imagination of the time exactly right so which which play did you go to and just go like what the fuck um the ones that really did it, my father transitioned us from, uh, he got tired of going to the uh, musicals. The musicals in it. And they had gone to Arena originally, which is kind of the repertory company there. And they, there you'd go to see Ibsen and uh-huh. Chekhov uh, and or, you know, those kind of things. And occasionally a new writer. But then a, a, a place opened in town uh, called the Washington Theater Club, of which four of the actors went on to become they all ended up in like a tv series one of them was the the guy in uh in the series with oh fuck here goes your brain um Selleck. yeah when Selleck was in hawaii and there was yeah. a guy hillerman john yeah. hillerman came out of this the, yeah. that actor yeah so like four really great actors well they're doing um beckett samuel beckett and uh pinter and um they're doing Brecht, and they're doing, and I'm like, and that kind of, that was the mind blower. You Brecht, Pinter, and uh, and uh, Beckett. Beckett, and, then, yeah. and everybody along those lines. It was all, 
kind of like and 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 not done in in, in that kind of uh, you know that kind of uh, precious oh this is real well this is really important what yeah. we're telling you was so fucking important yeah 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 that you're gonna have to listen to every word they, they were really they did great little productions those are not easy to wrap your brain around no but it was mind-blowing to me i mean it is you, know, you go to see pinner and you go it was like uh, a drug yeah Oh no! I in, in, like reading those plays. You're like, what the fuck is going on? I don't like to like at the time that I was, you know, really interested in theater and, and reading stuff like that. I couldn't even begin to understand where one gets the confidence to uh, to write something that is seemingly so abstract yet so emotionally poignant. Yeah, uh, you know, and and then there's other people like I saw some Odette's stuff, yeah. and that stuff's like to me, it's like this is written so everyone can understand it. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the underdog, and we want him to win. <laughs> Exactly. But he's going to get fucked. Yeah. yeah, no, it is. It's a totally. It's it, but like Brecht. I mean, I I don't have a lot of experience with it. I I have to be taught it. But Beckett's you know difficult, and Pinter's difficult. So when you start, and I'm not a major Brecht fan, by the way. I'm well, just he, never. He never hooked me. Yeah, yeah. All the Germanic. I mean, you know, I think it. You know, it was just a little too much. I yeah. mean, I get the, I get the idea, and the idea is great, but I think you had to be there. Yeah. <laughs> That's your review of Brecht. I guess you had to be there. Seemed abrasive to me. I mean, you know, if you're in a, a basement in Germany and, yeah. uh, and Hitler's on the rise, this shit is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. It might, it might mean something to yeah. the 12 people there. Yeah. Hope it survives the, the great destruction. Hope these papers get out. But... <laughs> Thank God someone got those papers. Yeah, I think Louis was friends with his great-grandson, you know, who was a pastry chef. (laughs) Yeah, I believe so, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, like that's one of those weird things where the the estates of those guys who are taught constantly, you know, just continue to generate, you know, a healthy income. Massive income, probably. Yeah, Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So... So at what point did you say, like, you know, I'm going to try to do this? Because you're not, like, it's a different time. Uh, you know, you weren't like we. I, I'm trying to write a sketch for Funny or Die, or I'm gonna I'm gonna do a six, a three minute thing for a YouTube station. Yeah. I imagine when you're like, I'm gonna do this. You're like, I gotta sit down and fucking wrench out a fucking play. What was that first experiment well, like? That was horrible. Come I on, went, was it? It was. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I, I what I did was is I went off uh, to the University of North Carolina and. Um, yeah. I had uh, I um, hadn't gotten into any of the colleges I really had applied to. Yeah, and so uh, I spent a year at the University of Maryland. I didn't do theater. I just kind of I did everything Basic. I could to get my grades to a point where I was going to transfer out. Basic, basic liberal arts business? Yeah, because I was really misdirected in terms of where I should be applying In high school, though? Wait, what, 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 what was high school like? Did you fuck it up? No, high school I killed. Okay. I mean, the problem was is that they directed me to schools that uh, they... They gave me no backup schools. Yeah. I was like fucking applying like psychotically. Yeah, like, like Harvard, all the big ones. Yeah, Brown. like yeah, Yale, Brown. I, you know, and uh, and I and I didn't quite under and I didn't get it. Yeah, I had friends who got it, but I didn't really understand what this. It was like to me there was a giant moat between me, high school and, and college. Yeah, and understanding what it meant that you know you're you're on a trajectory. Yeah, that you have to sort of decide about now. You yeah. have to decide the rest of your life and how you want to structure that now. Yeah. Because also we'd been in school together, my the class that I was with for six straight years. Yeah. Some because of the way the it was a public school, but the way we were transferred from being a junior high into a high school. So we yeah. been, so it was like this weird community, and all of a sudden I'm like, we've been doing, we're gonna stop now, and I got to go pick a whole group of strangers. 
So they sent me up. So I got in and none of these places. I went to Maryland. I jack. I get. I fucking take easy courses. Jack it up. Go to uh, go to Chapel Hill. Yeah. And make the decision at that point that I'm going to take as I did at Maryland. I'm going to take all sorts of other courses and make and to see if there's something the fuck else that I'm interested in because I know that going into theater is crazy because yeah. a I've got no. Who wants to be a critic? I mean, you just don't prep to be a critic, and I have to pick something to do, and I really started to feel after watching plays, my whole concept was that I think I can write more interesting dialogue than I have to listen to when I'm sitting down somewhere. Right. Now, was your father supportive of the the creative avenue? Yeah. My mother was psychotic, but my father, not psychotic, my mother was like- uh, What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Get a job with a pension. But my father was like, you know, do what you want to do. Yeah. Now, at this time, long hair, where were we at? Long hair, but my hair grew out like uh, Chia Pet. Yeah. Yeah, it was horrible. All right, so then- And a beard. Oh, yeah, of course. You You had to. Like, who were your heroes, man? My heroes at that time? I mean, you know, Hoffman, Abby Hoffman, uh, Paul Krasner. Uh, who's still a hero? <laughs> you can go see him. Why don't you stop? Have the have the car take you out to Palm Desert. <laughs> I know. You love to have you. I've seen him. I saw him about two years ago. He's yeah, he just... loves one. Go, but you go visit him. You sit down mm-hmm. in Palm Desert, and he'll talk to you a little while. He was everywhere. Yeah, it was an he... important thing. The realist, wasn't it? It was huge. It was, yeah, in my life, it was. In, in my life, it was. Um, I don't think people probably really realize it was that. a life changer. How so? Um, because it really taught me. Um, when I read, uh, I've talked about this before, but when I read this, uh, he did a thing, uh, uh, Manchester wrote uh, the, the death of, the, about the, what is it, the death of Kennedy. And he, oh, no, William the LBJ Man- thing? The LBJ thing. Yeah. Go ahead, tell well, it. Well, he's basically, um, in the, I think it's almost the same issue. There's that, and it's, it, they, it, it's, it's supposedly outtakes from things that couldn't be put in the book. And yeah. Jackie Kennedy goes back to the back of the plane where the, the coffin is, and she uh, sees LBJ hunched over the coffin. And, is, and uh, she thinks at first he's doing uh, some sort of an Indian ritual that he might have learned as a child. Yeah. But as she goes closer, she realizes that he's fucking the hole in President Kennedy's neck. Yeah. Now, that was... The the death of Kennedy was a pivotal moment in in everyone. I mean, I think in anyone my age's life because it, yeah. it, it totally ripped. It, we had lived in this comfortable suburban environment, and then every the whole fabric got torn apart. Yeah. and uh, and now you know uh, for you, and it's not funny, and it's, it's serious, and it's really, and all of a sudden it this <laughs> this I went. I was I was howling at this. In part, it was part out of pain, and part out of like, um, get over it, and it's time to move on. And it was uh, one of those things that just opened my eyes to the fact the that, audacity of of the image. Yeah, that you know, it's like what what <laughs> you, you know, like you know, even now that idea yeah, is is mind blowing. It's mind blowing, and it's it, it is what. When satire is at its best, it is it, it edges toward the psychotic, psychotic and completely immoral. Yes, yeah. yeah. That you know, if it's well focused, and you're going to go all the way with it, you, it's just crass and wrong and wrong-minded. Yes, only to make example of you know the bullshit you've been served. Yeah, 
And it kind of, and you know, it was the first time that the the whole mythology that had grown around Kennedy for me, yeah, you know, because it was I'm living in Washington to boot, so it's like it is right in Camelot. All of it, get, the bubbles burst, yeah, and uh, and it's like you could uh, you could actually like you, I began to look at things differently because of it. And then and in the same issue, he's got I have it on my wall. It's uh, um, he had a guy do, uh, or there's an artist that he worked with, who I believe worked with Disney. Oh, yeah, um, I have that. Of yeah, all those yeah, Disney yeah. characters. Having an orgy. Having an orgy. Yeah, yeah. And I was 15 at the time, or 16. and I, Oh, thank God for Paul Krasner. And I went, wow, this is, because you first look at it, and you go, oh, what's that doing? Holy fuck. You know, Mickey, you know, Mickey's got a fucking spike in his yeah, arm, I yeah. think. And then, many, yeah, but then your brain goes to, like, we can do this? Yeah. This is allowed. Yeah. This there really is no limitations to this freedom of speech idea, yeah. or to the power of of that type of imagery to sort of dismantle you know mythologies that have like you know got hold of our brain, yeah. right? Yep. I mean the thing about that, and also the thing about uh, LBJ, you know, fucking the neck wound is that that is a reasonable metaphor for politics. Yes. Yeah. No, it <laughs> so, is. So no, I mean he, that's exactly what I was thinking when you. Yeah, it is. And and you, you know you get and all for that. his relationship to JFK. That's right. You know exactly. <laughs> Just sitting there biting his lip and fucking yeah. gritting his teeth the whole fucking time. So so at that point, so you're 15 because I think Mad Magazine National Lampoon did that a bit for me. But like, how was the Realist available? I mean, it was literally a newsletter. I mean, where because when I talked to Paul for a couple hours, I I love that episode because I think that. You know, really, like I had no idea of how of the context of it because it was sort of a specialized thing. It was not a, a national magazine. It, it seemed like it was not easy to find. Where did you find the real? I don't know where I found it. All I know is is that I'd heard about it or something and got a I got a subscription to it. Right, and it arrived at my house. Right, and my parents, like a newsletter. And my parents, you know, much like a kid who might be playing, you know, was on the internet and stumbling onto these sites. I, my parents didn't, you know, it was like, oh, no one looked at it. Right. It was, yes, I, I was getting a magazine and there was that goofy bird on the front or whatever the fuck it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd get it and I'd race home and I would sit down and it was like, it was, it changed, it, you know, I mean, too, at the time, the, the sense of humor was like, leave it to Beaver and uh, the family shouldn't, all in the family, I think, is not even started yet. No. And, and you kind of go... This is just my sense of humor has been changed. Well, that I think because like Krasner, I talked to him about this because I, I have a hard time with history, but it seems to me that he took the spirit of Lenny Bruce. Like he was definitely there, you know, for a lot of Lenny towards the end. And, right. and you know, and he was sort of like absorbing it. But he took the spirit of the power of, of Lenny's balls around satire and, and was able to sort of harness it and contextualize it for the print you know, in a, in a fairly responsible way. Yeah. I think he was very aware that, you know, Lenny had, had sort of opened this door in America to, to the most poignant and, and, and courageous type of satire that really hadn't been seen, hadn't been seen at all. No. It was like, it was a new fucking thing. And out of that, you know, you get your mads, you get your, your lampoons and yeah. all that shit. But I mean, those are, those real, the realists at that time was just, you know, fucking mind blowing. It was. It was really extraordinary. So, you know, where'd you go from there? Was that your next thought, like, I'm going to bring this to theater? No, it was really, that just kind of, it was almost separate compartments, because there was a part of me that was tracking comedy. Yeah. 
Ed Sullivan. I loved watching. You bring him on. Any, I don't care who it was. Myron Handelman. I yeah. don't give a shit. Bring yeah. him on. Yeah. I just got a big kick out of somebody there for five minutes. Who'd you love? Holding that uh, Newhart, Berman, um, uh, who's Jackie Vernon. Love Jackie Vernon. Jesus Christ, he was funny. So funny. I've got a thing of his still. That, a uh, lounge recording? <laughs> Did you like a, a, a recording from uh, yeah, later? Like, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. this one, you know. Bob Schimmel gave me one. Bob Schimmel used to open for him, I think, in Vegas right? occasionally towards the end. Vernon was tremendous. Those guys come to, to mind immediately. There were others. Yeah. Uh, but those are the ones that really had, you know, Jonathan Winters yeah. would show up. Yeah. And he was another one. It was like, holy fuck. Yeah. Well, that, ju- that just took all the context. All the context has been this. Now you got a guy doing that. Yeah, yeah. The only guy. Yeah. Who does it with that kind of like menace. Yeah. I mean, and he really was the first of those kind of totally alternative. It was alternative comedy. He had no, he was just starting, he would create his own world and, and then fill it. With that's stuff. right. Fill it. And like, you know, and sometimes it got real dark, you know, even in the, like the 60s. Like mm-hmm. you were like, what? Like, you know, he would leave things hanging where you're like, whoa. Yeah, yes. but those guys were the initially Carlin. Right. Carlin kind of comes later, and but those guys were the ones when I'm like, you know, eleven, twelve. Yeah, I'm sitting there going, "Holy God!" Right, and uh, um, and I kind of tracked them. So it was a totally separate space. There was the theater space in my head, and the stand up space. And stand up fascinated me as a, uh, wow, this is something. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. But I'm, I don't, I'm not. It's not something that I thought I would do. Well, because I don't, I, I don't guess at that time you could see how it could contain your ideas. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't know if it was that or just the fact of like that. Holy fuck! Get up there and how do you do all, that? All those people, what right? The right. Fuck? I like talking, but but I also was hooked on the fact that I liked, really liked talking in front of people. So the context was always that. Uh, so so I would get in positions in student government where I would have to d- talk to big assemblies. You did when in high school? In high school. So yeah. that I would be, but the thing that, what's the great setup of that is, is it was going to be, you know, something that we have to talk about and it's serious. And then I'd take questions and then it was boom, boom, boom. And then, and then the jokes would come. So you did that? Yeah. Because I, but when you've got that serious thing yeah. to start with, it's not like, okay, I'm coming out here to make you laugh. Yeah. It's here's, and here's a surprise. Yeah. Well, yeah. And also like, it's a great, when, when the tone is set seriously, you know, you got an audience waiting for relief. Yeah, so you got a great. They're they're primed, and they're if you primed. can nail it, boom. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, and then the. Uh, and what, then, you, what were you in student government? I just was like, uh, I was like always in charge. I was in charge of my junior prom. That, that kind of very stuff. serious. That's some serious it, stuff, Lewis. You're right. Really, was, and then I, re- I was in charge of my class trip. Oh boy, yeah. You know, I mean, the, I couldn't win. An are, ele- I couldn't win an election, but are, I could sneak in. And yeah, but the yeah. junior prom was all done for, you know, it, the whole concept there was have a shitty junior prom and and we pony up money now and next year we have a really great prom and a great room for fucking free you idiots yeah so i pulled that yeah Yeah, yeah, i was it was and so i covered the walls and contact paper and then we went out and picked this was really great picked honeysuckle yeah threw it up on the walls they're kind of partially covered (laughs) it turns out that uh uh it was the the walls the we not only had honeysuckle but poison ivy no you did not (laughs) yeah i'm serious because i didn't i didn't i was not i'm not allergic to poison ivy yeah but three or four there were three or four incidences (laughs) at the junior prom at the junior prom people that got horrendous poison ivy (laughs) yeah including my friend who helped me drag it out that's how we discussed 
discovered we had poison ivy on the walls. Uh, but you didn't say anything. No, fuck it. it. No, I didn't know until just until during the prom. He's going, holy fuck, there was poison ivy. Uh, well, that sounds like a, a good bit. So, all right, so then you, you, you do all this stuff, and then you, you get into Chapel Hill. How does that work? So I get in there. I, I, I get I, the drama school. I go to the I go to that drama school specifically because you can. Uh, I, I make the decision that I'll write. I want to write, and and it's the only drama school that I know of in the country outside of maybe Northwestern, but but uh, but even Chapel Hill that you could yeah. your emphasis could be playwriting. Right. So I didn't you know I could I didn't have to do a lot of acting. I didn't have to direct right. much. I could do, but I could get real credits and to write plays which is so you it was the first initial concept of what what writing is is you, buying time yeah so i would have so by my senior year it was six credits to write a full-length play um and uh so i start. i wrote a i wrote a one act i sat down and wrote a one act i went into a class to apply or to you mean? no no not to apply just when i was there i took a playwriting class with a guy who was about first year yeah and not great. We had I had one. I had, the guys teaching playwriting. One guy was, would fall asleep while you were reading your play. Yeah, and then wake up. Do you remember the one act? I remember it was a, it was a, a play about. Well, it was really this. I wrote this thing, and it was about. Uh, it was at that time frame when we were just before, or just after Roe versus Wade. So I wrote a play about what, 72 about or a, something? What was that? 73? No, this is 67. I wrote this. That's how far back Roe versus Wade go, huh? I think so. Uh-huh. And uh, um, I got no sense of that dates. And so I um, I wrote this thing about a young girl and a guy who's gotten her pregnant and uh, and they've got no choice and what are they going to do? And she goads him into punching her in the stomach. So really... You know the kind of thing that people would pour into. It's gonna, it's gonna have an impact. Yeah, it, it did have an impact. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, and then I had, um, and, and from the very beginning when it came to theater, I, I always just said, okay, well, well, we're gonna do it. I don't need a set. You yeah, know, we're gonna. I need to hear it. Let's get it up. I had, we had really a, a bunch of actors there who I, I got to know, and I said, "Will you read this?" And they, and I, and about eight, ten people showed up, and uh, I, they really didn't have to tell me much after I watched it. I was like, "What the fuck is the matter with you?" And my back, literally, I'd say thirty things into it, I had to. Uh, my face was to the wall. I couldn't watch it. It was more than I could bear. Why? Um, I, it was. I was in shock over. I just, I, I couldn't take it because it was so. What? I didn't think. I, I, I thought it was. I, I just didn't feel it was disturbing, and I didn't feel it was good. Yeah, that I went. Oh boy, this you is took it. like some a very, very, like probably the heaviest yeah. of premises. Yeah, like you know, heavier than than you know a, a standard tragedy. Yeah, yeah, heavier than a death. And you, you're like, I'm, I'm this one. I'm gonna wrap my head around this. Uh, I'm gonna take this on. Yes, and I've still got the play. I've not looked at it. Well, maybe you can get together with Grafazi and uh... <laughs> turn it into a musical. <laughs> maybe it's time has come. Yeah, really? What was it called? I can't even remember. Well, you can. So. No, I can't. I swear to God. Sucker punch. <laughs> I think it may have been called the playground. Uh huh. Or oh, or oh, it's called Child's Play. Child's play. Oh my god! Wow, really talk about. You wanted to fucking. You were like, I'm here, man. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm taking on the big shit. I'm taking on the, I, or I'm taking on the big shit. Or as I learned as they were speaking my words, I'm disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a disturbed individual. Well, I mean, did you find during the process of writing that you were trying to resolve something? Do you still smoke? Yeah, you can smoke in here if you want. No, I'm I'm good. I'm, right. I really kind of am. I'm at my tail end of smoking. Okay. I'm I think you rolling. said that a few years ago. I, I did. Well, I mean, I did, actually. I did, because I was ta- I take this drug called Chantex, and yeah. I take it regularly, and I smoke three puffs of a cigarette, and I put it out. Oh, yeah? So it's really kind of changed. But now I'm really like, this is it, and I've got an electric cigarette. And um, Yeah, all good. I'm still on these fucking lozenges, but whatever. It's, tough. Right, well, it's the same thing. Tough not to crack. All right, it so is. you do so that. So you've, you've been off for yeah, a long time. Yeah, I haven't time. smoked them. They haven't smoked them. But I can't, these can't be good for you after a certain point. I, I mean, know. That's what I'm eat afraid of. Candy. That's what I'm afraid of with the electric thing. Well, it's just, it's, I'm going to yeah, electrocute what, myself. Yeah, you're a guy that, that, that is wary of things. Like, where the fuck is all that shit coming from? Who makes that juice? What the fuck is an electric cigarette? It, like everyone's just there's vapor stores everywhere, and you can get all these different flavors. But what are we sucking into our lungs? I know. Yeah, it's water. Is it's it? water. That's what they say. It's water with nicotine juice. It's it's, it's, uh, it's oxygen. You're just smoking oxygen with nicotine. Okay. Uh, all right. I guess that's better. Well, you know, I wish they'd come up with that delivery system initially. Well, I mean, who would want that? I mean, the, the fact that they're making it cool to non-smoking kids is crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, I want to know what the involvement of the cigarette companies are in the vapor business. Yeah, I know. that's. I, I don't know where that stuff is coming from. And I don't I know can't. why they don't. You know, they all they do, you read those articles in the paper and they just, it's like nobody's done like the next step of research. Yeah, exactly. You know, nobody's With looked anything. and they go, oh, this could be hooking children on They making... are, of course, they're hooking children. It's nicotine. But it's plus the flavors. Yeah, but it's just fucking nicotine. I mean, it's the most addictive substance in the fucking yeah. world, that shit next to heroin. All right, so you do uh, you do child's play yeah. to a resounding uh, to, to my shame. Own, to shame. And then I write another one that I don't remember at all. But I give that one, and ch- I give, ch- I actually give Child's Play to Robert Anderson. Robert Anderson wrote a play called Tea and Sympathy. Yeah. I never sang for my father. Oh, yeah, those are big, yeah. Robert Anderson was kind of, uh, after, he follows, you know, this is the only place on earth I can even begin to talk about this. He follows Williams. Yeah. He kind of comes out of the Tennessee Williams School. Uh-huh. Two very kind of important Two important plays, Teen Sympathy, especially because it had some, it never was, uh, you know, totally uh, open about it, but it was, uh, there's the first sense of a, a gay theme within it that this kid is different, uh-huh. yada, yada, yada. I, he comes to Chapel Hill, he reads my play, and then he says um, the words that really sent me down a very lonely road. You know, I think, yeah. I think you've got, I think you should pursue this. And I was like, oh, uh, fuck, right. okay, well. And I did. For how long? 20 years. 22 years. Now well, I was 40. Right, because I remember, right, so you graduate with your playwriting degree, you go back to New York? I go to, um, I go to, uh, uh, I, I've, I do a play that becomes hugely successful. Um, I, uh, they, they give me a fellowship to continue writing. So Where? I, at Chapel I, at Hill? Chapel Hill. Uh, the Schuberts used to give out the five fellowships yeah. around the country. I work on the... What was your play that became hugely successful? It was called um, Feast. And I wrote it with uh, a whole bunch of... Ca- uh, I wrote for a cast of actors, some non-actors. I put together friends of mine who did film. I had them write. We did commercials it, within the play. It was a play about growing up. It was 5 to 21. It was right place, right time. It couldn't have been... That nexus of really all of the elements. We put it on and people go nuts over it. 
because basically I took all of these kids' lives that I was working with and and basically said, ah, that's the common denominator, that's the common denominator, and just went through and tracked it. And, and it scenes toured? Or... It ended up, we... I did it with these kids, and then it got such great reviews that the uh, the the arts council in uh, in North Carolina gave us just enough money to tour for for uh, the four months, three months around the. But we did eight eight uh, eight theaters around. So it's proactive in like youth development and you know helping you know, people out. And yeah, and, but plus we were doing it at college. We yeah. went, we'd go from college right, to college, right. and then we'd have a discussion afterwards. Yeah. And it was right at the uh, you know, and the kid quit school at the end. Yeah, the kid. Um, can't deal with it, and he leaves school, and uh, it. So that became it, the group that I worked with. We then went on to write another play, which was not nearly as good. Um, but we decided we found a theater in Colorado, and we decided to buy that theater. And that was I spent uh, a year working in D.C. to make money to go out there and live and work in, in that Colorado theater, in Colorado Springs. What were you doing in D.C. to work? I worked for the Appalachian Regional Commission. Hmm. Yeah, what? And the Appalachian Regional Commission is a hear words you don't hear anymore. Mark, yeah, an anti-poverty agency. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because at the time, uh, the people knew that the people in Appalachia were broke. So it had been established under, uh, you know, uh, either Kennedy or LBJ during you know yeah. the war on poverty. Mm -hmm. And uh, now Nixon was in charge, and yeah. I had gotten this as a civil service job. So I'm working for two women in the child development, child care end of things. Yeah. And uh, I worked there for a year. Wow. Did you go to Appalachia? No, I didn't. I just worked for these. I was their assistant. Uh -huh. But I, uh, I did. Um, what did you learn? I learned that we, uh, I, I learned that I never wanted to work in an office. Uh -huh. That was the major That's what you, That was the takeaway? Not that you know, poverty is bad and it's never going to go away. That was the first thing I learned. The first thing I learned is I'm going to have to jump ship. <laughs> Second thing I learned was just that, well, the weird thing was is they wanted me to, to go to Appalachia. They, I was saying, you know, I'm going to have to leave. And they, they said, well, we, we want to offer you a job. We want to send you to Appalachia to talk to these women yeah. about their... Um, about their, you know, about you know, raising children and giving them all the information. Uh, be the guy going door to door to say, like, maybe you should put a plug in that meetings, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. I said, and I'm 22. I'm going. I don't have a job. Well, you can't send me. Yeah, send. <laughs> I'm a playwright. I mean, or unless you're going to dress me up as a woman, uh -huh. this is insane. You yeah. can't do this. Send the Jewish kid to Appalachia. <laughs> The 22-year-old <laughs> to try to get them to change their ways. Yeah, really. I mean, so it was. I, uh, and then I and I also learned that uh, the, the the cure for poverty under the Nixon administration was is that this was their idea was they were going to build nine golf courses in Appalachia, <laughs> and I'm serious. It's a job. It's a job creator. Anyone can drive a cart. And I literally discovered that, and I went like ballistic. And I'd wander around, and I didn't care if I, they fired me. Yeah. So I was able to say whatever I wanted to yeah. these people. Yeah. It was really it was it was a terrific. Uh, time in a lot of ways for me, but it was also like I got to get out of here. This yeah. is this is an insane asylum. So you bought a theater in Colorado Springs. So we bought a theater on the cheap too. It was like the guy had built it, and uh, it was a handmade theater. Uh -huh. And uh, it was uh, it was we it, we had about fifteen folks in the in the uh, in the in the group, and everybody sent in a hundred bucks a month or fifty bucks a yeah. month, and we could own it. it How long were you there for? When we got to Colorado, we lasted. A, well, some people went out early. I lasted about a year. 
and you did your plays and other people's plays. And but we not we never could work in the theater because once you got out there, you discovered that well, there you know the people who live around you in the little mountain area that we were up. We were at the, there's NORAD, which is the North American Defense Demand. It's yeah. in Cheyenne Mountain. Yeah. And if you go up the hill, there's a community just off there. Yeah. And they. We're not really thrilled with us. Is that where your theater was? Yeah, it was your proximity to the defense. Uh, yeah, really, is very in, curious. Within I, you could look right at it. missiles when you were growing up. Yeah, and you're in the shadow of NORAD. In the shadow of the NORAD the theater across, owner, and across the street is Fort Carson, which is moving toward. They're they're doing the test for a volunteer army. Uh huh. But what we did was, is we um, we couldn't work there. We did a show in the park. Uh, and you couldn't work in the theater you bought. No. We lived in the theater. Okay. <laughs> there were 12 of us living in the theater. So we, but we would do shows. We did, we've discovered the park. We worked, we did stuff at the schools. We worked as kind of an adjunct uh-huh. at the schools where we worked with, in all programs, we would present stuff that we would meet with teachers, what uh-huh. you need, and we would do that. And then we worked at the, uh, putting shows on with the kids and stuff. One, we did one show with the kids. We also, but but it was like if there was, we had a guy who was a wizard uh, coming up with little math stuff yeah. that was that that really was amazing. And yeah. then I, I, I would write things for you know if they had a book or or if they were doing, um, uh, the, they were doing the Crucible. We would come in and do three or four scenes. Uh huh. So it was a way to train these actors and 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 get it kind of paid for. Uh-huh. Uh and um and then we worked at the prison. We did some stuff with prisoners at the maximum security Really? Prison. And we did stuff at Fort Carson. So this is like really kind of progressive uh, yeah, idea it was, about it was, I, yeah. how drama can be used and how yeah. theater can be used and how to survive. Yeah. And for and you. also uh and the whole idea of it was because back then there was still this granting possibility from the government that if I could get all of those um, groups within the community communicating in one fashion or another with each other, we could get a grant for that. Yeah. And uh, But we never made it that far. We were too young. We yeah. were just too young. We to did, keep the, organized. The, we just didn't. I mean, there were young marriages. People were flipping out. They were doing, you know, Quaaludes yeah. just started. The yeah. whole thing. So is it just a mess? A, a hippie no, mess? It, it was a hippie mess. <laughs> it was fun, and we were really good at what we did, but we yeah. could not stay the course and also it just dawned on me it was like there was a place called the changing scene in denver that was the i don't even think the denver rep had started i'm going we're the only theater that i know of in colorado i can't i gotta go somewhere where i can learn this stuff yeah yeah right yeah to have some to be an apprentice of some kind yeah to somebody who does that kind of theater so that's when i went back east i worked for uh a theater there for uh where a, a theater in uh, outside of D.C. Uh-huh. called uh, Street 70, uh-huh. and now called The Roundhouse. Uh, what was the uh, manifesto there? That was, uh, you know, we'd come in, we'd do children's theater, they would do three or four plays, uh-huh. where some people from the community, they had a small acting core. Uh-huh. I wrote a play for them at that point. What was that play? That was called What I Meant to Say, which was about a group of people after college and how they were trying to manage. And, uh-huh. um and then uh, the, we did a, uh, and then um, at that point I applied to, the people said you should apply to Yale Drama School. And that, and then you got in? And then I got in, which I still. And you did four years there? I did three, you do three. Yeah. And then uh, did you write I stayed on two more years to figure out why I was there for the first three. <laughs> How'd you fund that? Were you on a scholarship? You mean the le- the next two years? It was cheaper to live. It was cheap to live in New Haven. Then. Oh, so you didn't go to Yale at that time? No, yeah. then no. Then two the two extra years, I I go down and do um, 
I would survive by doing work study for other kids. Uh-huh. The, the acting program, none of these kids could do work study, so I would get their checks. <laughs> I'd go do their work study. And then it was like uh, the the apartment I had was 50 bucks a month. It was oh like crazy. God. And what, How many plays did you write at Yale? I wrote four or five one acts. Yeah? And yeah. Did, did, are you any of them, are you happy with them? I'm happy with them. I'm, I'm kind of sad that uh, I think that... Uh, I'm trying to get them. They published my other play finally, and which so one? The the one, the one slight hitch. I would like to get these published because, uh, and I may just finally do it on my own. I, I with that, what's that publishing colleges. house that does the plays? What is uh, Samuel French right, and Dramatis yeah. Play Service? Yeah, and so I'm trying to get them to. Uh, if I can to get why, them to why uh, wouldn't they are they what they just what they what are they what is their the premise of saying no I don't know you know because it's theater theater is based on someone saying no somewhere all the time but the, the benefit of publishing with Samuel French is that if anyone purchases the scripts or puts on the play you have some percentage protection right that you will get something if they charge yeah. admission to that play right it's like the, the the play version of ASCAP or something else that if you buy these scripts from Samuel French yeah, yeah. And it's a legitimate production. You're going to get the kickback, yeah, for being the playwright. Yeah, but a minimal kickback. It's like uh, it's um, the 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 you, you, they pay you X amount of royalty. It's like with a book, they pay you an X amount of royalty. Then you have to have about thirty productions before that royalty is paid off. Uh huh. So, so now you're kicking around as a playwright. You're living fifty dollars a month. You're doing work study for other kids. You got five one X under your belt. You've done amazing work and learned a lot through. Uh, through the, your Appalachian experience, through your your hippie meltdown in Colorado, through your apprenticeship at this DC theater where you you learn the you know you're working with kids, you're doing the community uh, element of of what makes theater uh, for the people, and then w- when did you hit a wall and stand in front of a brick one? <laughs> it was it was uh, uh, I. Um... I moved to New York um, to write plays. To write plays. Uh-huh. What year? Nineteen eighty. Eighty one. And uh, so you really fucking you stuck with this thing. I was insane, and in retrospect, I really think I I was completely crazy. Only because I thought I was going to make a living at it. I really was convinced. Well, that's the amazing thing about the creative person in general yeah. is that despite any evidence of the contrary, <laughs> we plow on. Right. Well, I had been given, I wrote one full-length play and it was uh, called Nightfall and uh, it was done and it the the next hook because I would just get just enough. Yeah, right. Oh, that's you it. know, it's just yeah, enough just so a, that the pigeon I'm, can I'm smash it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to smash my nose another 50 yeah, times. Yeah. Uh, I moved to New York, and uh, we, um, uh, I, I, my, I have this play, Nightfall, in the Magic Theater in San Francisco, yeah, which is Sam Shepard's theater, yeah, and the theater that I aspired to work at says we'll do the play, so I'm like, I'm in, yeah, and then I have, I go there and have what was essentially a, a, the first real experience I have with a theater, and they, um, the director is someone who's never directed. Uh, yeah. a, this is her first play. She'd been the tech director. Yeah. It's her reward she gets to direct my play. Well, if you're going to have somebody direct your play, it better be somebody, if you're a new writer, who's fucking done 50 plays. So right. they can. She's she's as clueless as I am. Right. And then they hire... Now, the, the play's about a survivalist 
and it's it takes place after a catastrophe. <laughs> What's it called again? It's called Nightfall. Yeah, it takes place after a major catastrophe, but it's undescribed. And this group of people have kind of squatted together. This kind of semi two semi families, and the this survivalist shows up, and and he, and he's really like a a, a part for uh, you know. Um, you know, somebody, you know, you need a rough tumble guy. You need like a, uh, you know, a prick mm-hmm. to be it. Mm-hmm. And the guy that uh, I had uh, was like Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. It was the lead, a Jewish guy. <laughs> kind of ch- seriously chubby red yeah, hair yeah. and wanted to be liked as yeah. an actor. So I was like, <laughs> so I'm there like a, two days into it, I'm going, uh, you know, with about three or four, and I said, oh, we, I, I'm talking, I'm begging, I'm saying, take the money, whatever you're paying me, pay I mean, just get somebody. We got to get somebody else. This is this this is going to kill it. And uh, we couldn't. He's wearing by the by the third week, he's wearing a back brace. I'm serious. He <laughs> fucked his back up. So it didn't work. And the review from New West, a magazine which yeah. is my favorite review ever, yeah. is is that after watching this play this evening, uh, it is our sincere belief that none of the plays of Mr. Lewis Black should ever be produced in the state of California. Fuck. Okay. How good is that? Yeah, it's great. It's, it's very <laughs> it's very incisive. <laughs> and so he's got a point of view. Well, I just thought kind of like you hated it that much, there must be something to it. Yeah, yeah. You did something. Yes. Yeah, there was no like, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was really uh, it was a terrible production. Heartbreaking. It was really you know, but you learn your lesson because it's really you go holy god, and then I go back and, and it's a collaborative effort, and you couldn't control the yeah, and the, you can't yeah. And a, a lot of my experience in theater was it was collaborative efforts that were, and then you, much like you know we we've learned from doing what we do yeah. You know, you kind of go, you try for that first TV show, and then right, and you're you, working with Smarty and Farty. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and then the network, yeah, and, like and then Doofus you and go, Dummy. I don't think I can do that. Yeah, won't, yeah. That won't work. And, and, so then end like, up, and then all of a sudden you don't have any choices. Yeah. We know you won't do it, but we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. So if you don't want to be part of it, that's fine. We paid you. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see you later. You know what? Don't be part of it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go ahead and take it. <laughs> yeah. And, and gut it, and then you'll throw it out there. Yeah. It's horrible. So, so part of that, then I, I guess that the sense of like, fuck this. Yeah, I want some autonomy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to be autonomous as a writer. You can do that, but once it enters the universe, especially with plays, you don't know what the fuck's going to happen. Right. But when you make a choice to like, I'm going to stand up in front of people and entertain or do whatever the fuck I do on my own terms. No one's going to fuck with me except maybe the club owner goes, that didn't work out and you're not coming back here. Right. And that's it. That's a very intimate and honest relationship. I couldn't sell tickets. Uh, You piss some people off. You're not coming back here. Or great. We'll see you next year. Right. And that's what drove you there. Yeah, yeah, it is in part. I mean, and it's also what drove me to stand up was that it, I was looking for more and more independence. And right. I was like, okay, I mean, the greatest thing ultimately, as you probably know about stand up, is is it's you and them. It's yeah. just you and your audience. Right. And the audience, and not even your audience, it could be any audience. But you, there's no one can come in and, you know, Mark, in the middle of your act, you know, that would have worked better. If. Right. So you started doing it in 81, 80? I started doing stand-up when I was in college, but yeah. I was doing it really on the side, like right. for fun. Coffee house stuff? Yeah. Yeah. And then I started doing it in, uh, when I got to the drama school. They, they had a, a cabaret space, and they'd always need somebody like once a semester to come in and do, so I'd do six shows. Yeah. And I would, and it was a way in which, it, what I immediately discovered about, about stand-up more than anything else is I could write 
for myself. Right. So I could get my words out there. It wasn't so much my performance. Right. Because my performance was horrific. But but, uh, but could, you got to get your point of view. But I could get my, I could write. Yeah. And get it seen. Yeah. Because yeah. stand-up, you might as well. I mean, with playwriting, what I've said about playwriting ultimately is, is if you're thinking of writing a play, when you finish it, put it in a bottle, find a body of water, throw it in, and it will be read faster than it will be read by any American theater. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you mean your performance as a stand-up early on was was horrific that you you didn't you know you weren't engaged with the words necessarily i wasn't uh i wasn't comfortable on stages i just thought i could not get over the fact that i'm supposed to make them laugh i i just wasn't comfortable on stage right and then when did you start feeling the hands going up uh, that started when i really started working the um when i ran the west bank well, see, I remember that period. Like, yeah. you know, like I knew that you were a guy that, you know, was clearly doing his own thing, that you had that, you had, you know, you uh, had residency at the West Bank, you ran a show there, but it, it always felt like a, like it was a workshop environment. Yeah. And for other people that you had on the show and you didn't, you didn't, uh, did you always have comics or there was some other stuff? No, it was mostly, I mean, a lot of it was, it was like John Bowman who was, who was a comic, but was also an actor. Yeah. A lot of them, there were actors who wanted to do comedy. There were uh, a a playwright named uh, Warren Light who now really writes for, uh, right, is the head on Law and Order, was the head on Law and Order for a long time. He, he wrote stuff. So you created a community theater space in a way. Exactly. And, and, and a place where I could get my my writing up, and I hosted. I did the thing that you do if you're coming through the ranks as a comedian of being the uh, MC of a show. And you were doing that on your own time, on and, your own volition. Yeah, right? and that's really where I relaxed. And then I got then, on stage and really started to go. Oh, I get right, it. and on your own terms. Yes, without and then you started to play catch and that. And kind that of stuff. Yeah, and that was where. That's where, where that's where that's where our love bloomed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, catch in New York though. I mean, you were got yeah. was it still around? Yeah, the original yes. catch. Yeah, so I you was, were there towards the end of that. I was there with in the lineup was Dennis Leary. Yeah, uh, me. Uh, Mario Cantone and Kevin Meany. Sure. So, like, it, it's interesting because you really came to be in that '80s comedy boom, and but but, but unlike many other people previous to that, you had you know an, an extensive sort of, uh, I, I don't know if you'd call it a career, but a journey as somebody was chasing this playwriting thing yeah. that you were very serious about. Yeah. So it was just sort of your second wind, your second invention. And then, because I remember by the time you got to Boston, yeah, I don't know if you were bitter, but I, I know that you were <laughs> you know, sort of you know stuck in that groove of like, how do you transcend you know, just being another headliner? Yeah. Because you always had a very specific point of view and, 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 and uh, performance style. But I also remember in Boston that you were involved with the Christopher Durang play. Yeah. Because I went to see you in it. Yeah. And I, I don't remember what that was. Media muck. Okay, so you were sort of you played yourself in a way, right? Well, I was Morton. I was Morton Downey, but oh, that's me, right. But myself, right? Yeah. Right. Okay, I mean, they right. really wanted somebody. Christopher knew me, and he wrote it for me, and he wanted somebody to come on stage. I mean, I yelled. He just wanted me to come on stage. The first two and a half minutes of the play was me screaming at the audience. Right. 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 And then I, you know, I remember seeing that, and then like. And I knew that you were, you know, that you know that your your point of view was, you know, informed by, you know, I don't know what, you know, what religion you grew up with, or you know, and, but obviously your your point of view on politics and and God and, and all that stuff, you know, this is a this is sort of a you know very specific avenue of stand up, yeah. you know, the provocateur and you know somebody who's going to you know stick it to the guy, yeah. and then it sort of evolved, you know, I think you know once you you got the 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 opportunity on the Daily Show, that you had sort of like. You know, you had, you know, the diamond had come out of the coal 
and you somehow were able to you know, have a very specific archetype in comedy which is you know the the informed crank and i think you're naturally that way and it's a rare it's a rare disposition only certain people can do it and they're always you know it's always a relief to have them there <laughs> and you know you've had your reign for a long time and you hold on to it but you know by the time you got to the daily show you had had enough that you know that was the disposition what why how is this going to keep happening <laughs> yeah. and you know that is speaks to you know almost everybody and uh and i think you've done amazing with that but that you know i i just as a as a way to to maybe give false hope to people who are starting out you know you're one of those guys where it's like well lewis didn't really hit till he was 52 yeah. or something yeah i mean how old were you when that turned around when the daily show turned it around for you let's see so it was 17 uh 50 48 49 50 what a great story well it was like it was really uh, you know it was really amazing i mean and it, and it really was that uh uh you know if if because of the nature maybe the way media is going hopefully that uh it it for others that uh because it's opening up that yeah. uh, that that these people you know i um that I was, I was l- lucky enough to be, fa- you know, found. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh, because for you know it was a huge change for me. Yeah. And how did John find you? John didn't. I was on with Liz Winston. Oh, I was right. on from the very beginning. Right. That's the right. The first time I started doing it, there was no audience, and it just evolved, and it really kind of is. Uh, it's gone through all sorts of permutations, uh-huh. but I mean, it's like the, you know, it's I. It's one of those things I uh, I need to do it, and they still seem to want, to want me. And it still puts it puts new people in the seats and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I have to tell people I'm out there. I mean, it's yeah. the weird thing is, well, you know, that image Kinda. needs to be your face right. needs to be out there. Yeah, or else you know, no one knows. Like I still like you know, more people. Obviously, many more people don't know me than do. And just the fact that the first season of the show's on Netflix, people are like, "Where the where have you been?" Yeah. Oh, I, I've been here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad everything's working out, and you still love it. It's yeah. a hell of a story. It's a fun story. It and, was fun. Yeah, and uh, it's always good to see you, man. It was really a pleasure, Mark. Thanks for coming. Yeah. All right, that's our show. I thought that was an amazing conversation. It's an amazing conversation with Lewis Black because I didn't know that stuff. Did you know that stuff? Lewis Black's career as a playwright. Fucking awesome. Thank you for listening. I'll be at the Ice House Sunday, April 6th, 7 o'clock with Ian Carmel. Go to WTF Pod for all your WTF Pod needs. Get that WTF app. I don't know if the comment sections are, are if the comment section is gone yet, but it will be. So leave your last comments if it's even still there. Oh my God. Okay, I got to go put the sandbags back in front of the door. God, why don't you grow the fuck up, Mark? Grow the fuck up. Spend some goddamn money. Get your goddamn driveway fixed. Fix the fucking drain. Seriously, do it. Boomer lives!